Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're going to be covering a mock exam for practice management. Uh, and so, we're, like we often do, we'll use a mock exam. We're going to cover a variety of topics on this particular division, and then we'll share the answers of the mock exams and sort of discuss some of the different uh, considerations uh, for this specific uh, exam. Uh, and it's going to help you to give you a hint, uh, sort of a taste of some of the key things that uh, uh, that you're going to uh, see on this exam. Uh, in our next ARE Live broadcast, which is on May 21st, uh, we're going to cover uh, the project management uh, exam, and we'll do another mock exam for that. Um, and during that, same thing, we'll uh, you know we'll we'll touch on you know five or six questions, and we'll talk through uh, all the different aspects and, and considerations there, which will give you a good taste of, uh, of what's going on with that exam. Uh, a few things about our products. Uh, for those of you who are new or joining us for the first time, uh, Black Spectacles, we're the first ever NCARB approved uh, test prep provider for all six of ARE 5.0 divisions, um, which has been you know, quite an honor uh, to have NCARB uh, sort of give us the, the seal of approval. Um, and then we offer you know, uh, four different plan levels uh, in durations to, uh, you know, for you, uh, which have different sort of study tools and so forth. Um, so you can kind of choose and pick the, the, you know, the membership that best suits your needs. Um, one interesting thing, we recently launched an ARE community, uh, and that's an online uh, forum uh, that you can use. Um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's a great place when you have a question about material on the ARE, you're sort of stuck on something, you can go to that community. We actually have moderators there who, uh, who are, um, let's say waiting for you guys to post questions there um, and they're you know queued up and ready to answer them. Um, also, it's a good place to go if you're looking for strategies about how to deal with the test, uh, the series of tests, or, or frankly, if you're just looking for inspiration for getting through the whole process. So it's a really wonderful place. We've had it for a couple of months. Uh, it's going really well. Um, one thing we do each week, you should also know on the ARE community, is we do a practice quiz. So every week we post one question for each division and it's free and you can go there and you can kind of, uh, of course, take that quiz question, post your answer, uh, and then you'll see in the thread, you'll see people commenting and so forth. Uh, just a really great way to kind of keep your skills sharp and, uh, and, and prepared for the test. Uh, so you can, you know, go there right now, check out any of those um, conversations. It's just community.blackspectacles.com. Um, and it's a really great uh, resource. Um, one of the things we're going to do for ARE Live is we're going to use our community as a place where we're going to engage uh, during the podcast. Uh, so again, if you have any questions about PCM, uh, it's a great place to post them. Uh, lastly, uh, you know, if uh, uh, if you're at a firm where there's lots of different candidates, uh, you know, maybe who are who are studying, uh, one thing we uh, like to share with people is we do offer firm memberships, uh, so folks can fill out the form at blackspectacles.com/firms, and uh, we'll connect with you. Uh, we just posted uh, a link, I believe, in the chat box. Um, of course, the most important thing probably of all here is, uh, in terms of updates, is you guys have probably heard that Prometric testing facilities are supposed to open on May 1st, which is in a, about a week. Um, sounds like uh, they're going to open them with limited testing cap seating capacity. Maybe uh, what they've been saying is, sounds like they're going to um, sort of open with only 50% seating capacity, uh, which of course means, you know, then, you know, I think they're trying to accommodate social distancing essentially. Um, so if uh, if if going ahead and, and barreling forward with pursuing the test is is important to you, which it is for so many people, we'd encourage you to sign up as soon as possible because because they're reducing capacity, we're sort of expecting that you know 
that means only half the number of uh, slots are going to be available. So if you want to get going on your tests, which for many of us, it's a great time to do that. Um, you know, we just encourage you to sign up as soon as possible so you can uh, so you can get the seat uh, for the tests you want to uh, you want to get done. Um, as always, uh, we at the end of this will have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships. Uh, so we'll share that at the end of the uh, the episode. And in terms of a giveaway, again, sort of our emphasis here on the community, uh, everyone who posts, and you have to post on our community today uh, in our PCM mock exam thread. So what we did is we actually put the mock exam on our community, and there's a thread going there. In fact, I think there was 10 or 15 posts uh, last time I was there. So go straight over to our community, community.blackspectacles.com right now. Uh, the first post at the top there is the mock exam. So go there right now and post, uh, you know, maybe what was the most important thing or the most difficult uh, thing in the mock exam, what your, most, what your biggest question is about the PCM exam, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever you're thinking about relating to PCM, go ahead and post it on the community. And everyone who posts something by the end of the episode today um, is going to be eligible for, uh, for winning a free t-shirt. So we'll run our, uh, our giveaway that way um, and hope to see you all there. Uh, Mike and I will be there probably a little bit later. I'll keep my eyes on it as the episode goes along. Um, now, if you don't know our guest, Mr. Mike Newman, he's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as well as the founder of Shed Studio, and he's uh, the instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep lectures. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Mike. Uh, thanks. Uh, good to be here. I will uh, officially hand it over to you, sir. Okie doke. Um, so one quick thing to say about the testing centers, just be ready for it to be a little rocky on the start because you just never know they might start up and then one city cracks down on the lockdown again and another city doesn't and so it's likely to be quite different in different locations around the country i think they're going to try to open it all at the same time but i uh, just heads up for a bit of a rocky start good point uh and then uh the other th quick thing to say is quick note about the practice management uh, practice management and project management are pretty similar, and you'll see that there's a lot of overlap. So when you're studying for one, you probably want to also be thinking about how you would be studying for the second one as well, um, which is why we're doing the, the next one on project management. Uh, essentially, this is all those places where it's just kind of the general issues of like how things get, how, how you run things in an office and how you make a, a project kind of go from beginning to end. Uh, so it's all pretty generalized, um, but uh, a useful set of information to go through. Uh, in many ways, this is the one that you probably haven't spent much time in school or in other places kind of learning about. So this one's actually pretty interesting because it gets you ready to really like, you know, be proactive in the offices that you work in. Uh, so why don't, we, uh, why don't we dive right in here? So we just have a few questions. I'm going to go through uh, and sort of see, uh, we'll discuss them a little bit um, and see uh, see what you think. So our first question here, uh, choose the type of insurance that your new architecture firm is likely to encounter in the process of running your office. So it's a multiple answer. Uh, we're going to choose three possible answers out of the six that are available. Uh, the ones, the available answers are builder's risk, municipal bond, MB, General Liability, GL, Errors and Emissions, ENO, Underwriters Laboratory, Professional Liability Insurance. So uh, a couple things uh, right off the bat. Um, I'm going to uh, sort of 
a little unusually, I'm just going to give you the answers right off. Uh, so the first one that is absolutely true uh, is going to be C, general liability. And the reason that, that you're going to get uh, general liability is that everybody gets general liability. So if you're uh, a restaurant in Topeka, Kansas, you have to have general liability. If you're a law firm in Akron, you have general liability. Uh, if you're, uh, you know, any sort of business that has the public coming in or clients coming in and out, um, it's the kind of thing that any business needs for the kind of general things that might go wrong uh, for that business. So that's separate from the kinds of uh, insurance that you need that are specific to your architectural work. So if somebody comes into your office and trips on the rug, that's a general liability. It doesn't have anything to do with your decision, excuse me, your decision making uh, through the process of an architectural project. However, if you uh, did a very bad detail uh, and there was a trip hazard in one of your projects and somebody came in and tripped on that, that's not general liability, that's actually professional liability. That's your decision-making as it goes to, uh, as, as part of an architectural project. So professional liability is the sort of architect's uh, version of where it's the insurance that's specific to the architects and it has to do with your decision-making and kind of understanding of code compliance and things like that. Um, the other one is errors and omissions, which is essentially the same thing as professional liability insurance. Um, and the reason I sort of use this is it's important to know that sometimes certain topics have uh, the same name and you'll see versions of questions that will refer to ENO and you'll see other ones that will refer to professional liability. Um, errors and omissions is kind of the old timey way, like a lot of the older folks you work with probably call it ENO insurance. Uh, most of the time these days, most people will call it professional liability, and I think the exam will mostly uh, uh, defer to professional liability. Um, but both of those are plausible uh, responses. So let's take a look at some of these uh, other ones. Builder's risk is an interesting insurance. The builder's risk is actually something that you'll come across many, many times. Um, but it's not something that you do for your architecture firm. Uh, builder's risk typically is taken out by the client, the owner of a project, um, and uh, it's at the beginning of a project and you take out the builder's risk and then anything that goes wrong, uh, you are able to, um, uh, it's the sort of first insurance that is going to sort of keep the project going, uh, you know, pay out what needs to get done right away, uh, sort of keep everything rolling. And often it's the only insurance because it depends on what it is that's being, what's happened that's caused the insurance problem. Um, but often it's the insurance that pays out first, but then they will then go towards uh, you know, the general contractor's insurance or the architect's insurance or uh, somebody, you know, the city's uh, insurance, if it was, you know, something about the, the street frontage or something. Um, so it's it's the first place when there's a problem, uh, the first insurance that gets uh, uh, dealt with and it's uh, taken out by the client, by the owner. Um, it's every once in a while, other parties will take it out. It get, can get a little complicated, but generally it's the kind of background uh, um, uh, insurance uh, as a construction project gets going.
And then municipal bond, um, municipal bond is actually not insurance at all. A municipal bond is, uh, let's say a town wants to uh, build a new high school um, and they, you know, in order to do that, they need sort of extra money than the usual flow of, of tax money going through that municipality. So what they do is they raise taxes, but nobody wants to just raise taxes because it just looks bad and it's difficult to control. Uh, and so a version of raising taxes is a limited time raising of taxes. And sometimes it's not general taxes. Sometimes it's very specific taxes that will fund the bond. And it's a way to raise money for a specific project for a limited period of time. Uh, and the reason that I put municipal bond in here is the word bond um, is actually often associated with insurance, just not the term municipal bond. So for example, a performance bond is a type of insurance that uh, a client can get Let's say you get uh, five bids uh, and you're, you're the owner and you, you get five uh, bids for a construction project from uh, potential general contractors. And the four of them all range in the 4.4 to $4.8 million range. And one comes through at 3 million. And you're like, wow, this is such a good deal. This seems a little, I'm a little worried about this. Uh, one of the things you can do if you're that client is you can get a performance bond uh, which is essentially an insurance company saying, hey, uh, we, you know, we believe these uh, contractors will be able to do the work for the $3 million. Uh, and so you're going to pay us uh, your insurance fee and we're going to take the liability and responsibility that if for some reason they can't do it, we will step in as an insurance company, bring in a new contractor and finish the project and only uh, bill you ever up to that $3 million uh, fee. Um, so bond is an example, one of those words that shows up in multiple places and, and is actually in the insurance discussion, just not municipal bond. Uh, performance bonds are really interesting because they uh, get paid for often through the general contractors, even though it's the client who, the owner who's uh, who's technically getting the, um, the, the insurance. And the reason for that is, you know, it's not like you just go to a random insurance company and say, hey, will you give us a performance bond? Like clearly those, the people who are insuring those, uh, those, those performance bonds uh, want to be, uh, feel comfortable and knowledgeable about the general contractor that they're uh, covering. So it tends to be uh, that the performance bond actually comes through the general contractor because they have relationships with people who already know their work and already feel comfortable with them. And if you have a contractor who can't get a performance bond, that's a signal that there's maybe some problems there and you should really be careful. So performance bonds are kind of fascinating. Uh, they're sort of on the periphery of the architectural work, but you will see them as part of your, your work. And then the last one there, Underwriters Laboratory, probably uh, if you didn't recognize it right off, I'm sure you'll recognize it immediately once I say, um, UL is uh, the entity that tests uh, wall types, it tests uh, uh, light fixtures, it tests all those things about, uh, typically mostly about um, whether they'll catch fire in you know, any situation or uh, what if you put a series of assembly materials together, what the fire rating that would create for say a wall or floor uh, floor assembly. 
Um, and uh, Underwriters Laboratory, another interesting organization, uh, back in the day, I don't remember how many years ago this was, but uh, many, many decades ago, um, insurance companies were having this really hard time. They would insure people and then buildings would burn down and they were like, you know, how do we find some way to make this more uh, where it's more predictable? And so uh, insurance companies got together and started this entity as a sort of third party of uh, uh, the underwriters laboratory. Underwriting is a different word for insuring. Um, and so this third party does all these different tests and then everybody, uh, the insurance companies, the building uh, commissioners, uh, architects, the contractors, everybody uh, uses it as a trusted source, uh, which means that if you say it's a two hour rated wall, we all get what you mean and we all understand where the, where the information comes from and the insurance companies can feel more confident in providing insurance uh, for the different projects. Um, so insurance is one of those weird little things, a little corner of the exam. There's not gonna be a lot of questions about it, but you should definitely feel comfortable with uh, the differences between, uh, for example, architects insurance about decision making and uh, contractors insurance about uh, actually complying and finishing and, and uh, all of the uh, safety on the job site kinds of issues. All right, that was a lot. Uh, let's try the next one. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Looks like a lot of people, uh, you know, were, were head faked, I think, by the uh, Arizona missions and um, yeah, I, liability. That was a good and one. I should always I always try to start these things off by saying, you know, this is just me wanting to be able to talk about some various issues. They should be pretty similar to questions that you'll see on the uh, on the exam. But uh, if, if I had faked you, don't don't fret about it. It's this is just me trying to get a chance to talk about certain topics. Uh, all right, on the next one, number two, on the typical AIA contract, there is an effort to stay away from expensive and time-consuming litigation unless absolutely necessary. Which of the following are examples of how to help answer problems that come up between the owner and the GC? So a couple of things here that just to make sure everybody notices, one is it's the AIA contracts. The second thing is that it's the owner and the GC where the problems are. It's not an owner to architect problem, it's an owner to GC problem that the architect is trying to have some, uh, to be part of the process or, or is supposed to be helpful in, in the process. Um, so we look down the list, we have initial decision maker, civil court, dispute resolution, uh, mediation, change order, arbitration. So a couple ones that I can get rid of right away, one is civil court. And the reason I can get rid of that is that is essentially litigation. Uh, so if we're trying to stay away from litigation, we're not gonna use litigation to stay away from it. It doesn't make any sense. Um, it's just a different way of talking about those terms. And you might ask, well, why are we trying to stay away from litigation? And the answer to that is uh, it takes a really long time and it's very expensive. And if you're in the middle of a construction project, uh, you know, something that takes a very long time and is expensive, you know, is very hard to fit into the time schedule of a typical uh, construction project. So if everything has to stop for two years or three years until something gets worked out, well, you know, the project is, is dead in the water by that point. Um, and so it's a very difficult way to answer questions 
though sometimes it just has to go to litigation. It's just too complex legally uh, to deal with in, in any other way. But uh, in general terms, most of the time you're trying to stay away from uh, direct litigation. Uh, so civil court, we got rid of, and then I'm gonna also get rid of dispute resolution. Um, and the reason I'm getting rid of that is dispute resolution is just sort of a general category. It's not a specific um, enough answer. So if there wasn't a better answer, it might be plausible as a, as a going possibility here, but there are three better answers. Uh, and then the last one that I'm gonna get rid of is going to be change order. So change order just means that there's a contract between an owner and a contractor and uh, that contract says uh, what they're gonna build, how much it's gonna cost and how long it's gonna take with lots of other supporting information. Um, and part of that uh, contract is essentially the your drawings and specifications and all of that uh, that uh, are effectively uh, a major part of the contract. So they get listed by date into the contract. So your drawings become part of their contract. But as we all know, things often change as they go through the construction. And so the change order is just, there's a change to uh, the, the design, which means at that point, you're changing the contract because either the scope has changed, the cost has changed, or the schedule has changed in some way. Uh, it could be as simple as somebody wants to change a paint color uh, to we're chopping off the west wing of the building and we're not going to build it because the owner's running out of money or whatever the issue is. Um, so change order is a way that we deal with things that are changing. It doesn't really have to do with dispute resolution. So that leaves us with a couple of obvious ones here. Um, one is arbitration. Uh, the other one is mediation. Um, and arbitration is uh, it's sort of a privatized version of litigation, uh, which means it's also expensive and time consuming, just not anywhere near as expensive and time consuming as litigation. Um, and arbitration is, uh, there's there's a couple different ways it can, can go, but sort of a general understanding of arbitration is that you either have a single person or often a like three person panel um, who will, who are people who have construction knowledge, uh, design and construction knowledge. Often it's former contractors or former uh, um, city officials, uh, things like that, um, that uh, go into and become uh, specialists, uh, people who can then be brought forward to, to, to be on an arbitration panel. Uh, both parties, the owner and the GC, would need uh, to be able to uh, uh, accept who was on the arbitration panel. Um, and then you, you would make a case in the same similar way that you would do in court, uh, but usually a little bit more informal um, and a little simpler. That case would be made and then the arbiters uh, arbitration panel would have uh, what is effectively um, a, a formal answer that everybody has to agree to. There are situations where if things uh, you can actually challenge it and it can then go to litigation, but not always. Uh, sometimes arbitration is actually the final stop. Um, mediation is a sort of a, a similar but simpler version. So mediation, the way I always imagine it is there's a table and there's somebody at the head of the table and then there's people on either side of the table and uh, everybody kind of says their piece. 
And then the mediator kind of goes off and sees if they can kind of come up with a reasonable compromise solution for everybody. Um, so it also takes time. It also takes money. Both parties still, just like arbitration, have to agree on who the uh, mediator is going to be. Um, but the, the concept there is that it's a sort of little bit faster, a little bit simpler, a little bit more informal. Uh, and uh, you have sort of somebody that everybody trusts who goes through the information and says, yes, uh, you know, uh, the amount that they were trying to charge is too much, but the amount that you wanted to pay, that's not enough. How about this number? Um, and so it's a way of kind of everybody getting somebody who they trust to help uh, answer a grievance between the two parties. Um, so those are the two big ones. But another one, uh, which is this first one, A, is initial decision maker. And it's such a weird term, uh, the IDM. Uh, and it came into the AIA contracts uh, back a little while ago. It's, it's not, hasn't been around for a long, long time, but it's been around for a little bit. Uh, maybe 10, uh, 12 years. And uh, the idea is that the architect is actually the sort of de facto initial decision maker. They don't have to use the IDM. Um, they can go straight to a mediation or do something else. They can choose someone else. But the idea is that the architect plays this unusual role. In fact, many unusual roles. Um, one is you're there to help protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public but you're also there to protect and be an agent for the client. Uh, and so obviously there's potentially some conflicts within that. Um, and then this third role is you're also just sort of supposed to be a professional. You literally have a professional degree uh, and a professional license. Uh, and by being a professional, you are sort of required, I'm not sure how to quite say this, but you're required to be reasonable um, and that the idea of if you're the reasonable person uh, in, in the process, that when these two other entities are having uh, a difficulty uh, coming up with a, an answer to a grievance between, between them, uh, that you as the reasonable uh, architect, professional uh, person on the site uh, should be the first place that they go to. And so as before it gets big and messy and gets into a mediator, or gets into arbitration, or especially gets into litigation, they should try using you to figure out uh, what a reasonable answer is to the problem. So uh, the IDMs will show up in the AIA contracts. They won't show up in anything else. You won't see it anywhere other than in AIA contracts. Um, and uh, it's a similar version to mediation, but it's uh, where it's built in who the mediator is. Like I said, they can actually choose a different person to be the, uh, to, to be the IDM. You just do that in the contract when the contracts are being signed. Um, I think you can also change it later if, if there's, for some reason, one of the parties doesn't like uh, the, the idea that the architect's playing that role, but the assumption is that the architect would be that IDM. All right. Thanks, Mike. Getting a lot of good questions and comments here on the community. I think we're up to almost almost 40, it seems. Um, um, I, maybe, Mike, while we're here, um, one comment from one of, one of our posters, smith.marks, uh, says, in regard to the first question, I, I view arbitration, mitigation, and litigation all as forms of dispute resolution. Thoughts? Mike, I wonder what yeah, you, you No, think absolutely. Um, it just, they are all forms of dispute resolution. Uh, which is, uh, in fact, it's the category that they all fall into. 
which is uh, why when there's an actual sub member, it's a more accurate answer to go to the more direct answer. Got it. Yeah, so in a way, um, it's like the general way to describe these three other things that you're mentioning, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, um, so with many, many other things that wouldn't really be part of the AIA contracts. Um, these are the three things that are like the category in the AIA contracts is dispute resolution. Um, now, what is it that's in the contract? It's these three things. Well, actually four, because litigation is also in there. Got it. Thanks, Mike. All right. Uh, number three. Your team is very excited to be working on a new architecture project for a new library community center. The negotiated fee is $200,000 for the architecture portion of the work. At the end of schematic design, you should probably be invoicing how much. Now, this is a little funny because there are numbers that are sort of generally uh, accepted and are the sort of typical fallback numbers that show up uh, on the AIA contracts. Uh, but there's also, you know, a lot of different firms will use different percentages of the work. Um, so it's not always super obvious. However, there's only one answer that's really anywhere near close to how this should really go. So uh, first thing, just to remember for everybody, uh, so you've got SD, which is schematic design, and that's typically about 15% of the overall fee. You've got DD, which is design development, and that's typically about 20% of the overall fee. You've got CDs, which some people will call construction drawings, but technically is contract documents. Uh, and that is typically about 45%. Uh, then you have the bidding phase. Uh, so that's all the times where you have to write the bid documents. You have to answer uh, questions through an addenda. You have to uh, maybe interview contractors with the owners. There's a fair amount of work that actually gets done uh, after you've produced your, your bid documents. You, you've got to actually go through this pretty extensive process. Um, so that usually you typically leave about 5% of your overall fee and then CA construction administration is the last 15%. Now, these days there's so much work done on like Revit models and such upfront in the schematic design. So you'll see, uh, some firms are jumping that up to like 18% or even 20%, um, and maybe flipping the 15 with the DD or something because they're, uh, front loading the project so much with so much information. Um, but the sort of typical percent, uh, 15% of 200,000 would be, uh, right there, uh, $30,000. So B would be the answer. Uh, 10,000 is just not believable. You just, that's not enough money for SD. Uh, 60,000 would be, um, instead of 15% would be 30%. Uh, and while some of these numbers are going up, they're not going up that high. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if in five, 10 years, uh, you see a totally different way of thinking about these things, uh, because this breakdown is, is having a little bit of a hard time, uh, kind of matching to the current models of how people actually producing work. Um, there's, there's a lot less, uh, 
you know, kind of in, in the older, more like AutoCAD drawing sense, you were much more typical to, to have like, okay, this is a schematic drawing. And then when you're done with that, now you move to design development. But these days, so much of it is all intertwined in a single model that uh, these numbers are having a hard time, but they are the current understanding uh, of the way uh, that would show up on the exam and the current understanding of uh, how the contracts work. Hey, Mike. Yeah. Uh, Mike, can you hear me okay? Yep. Cool. <laughs> Something funny happened with our audio where <laughs> there was like a blip and then uh, and then you started sounding much deeper, <laughs> the, your voice. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, uh, I'm getting more manly by the hour or something like that. Yeah, impressive. I, I wish I could do that, man. Um, I thought maybe uh, if we pause for a second, maybe the internet would catch up uh here and uh undo whatever weirdness happened there okay uh you still sound a little deeper to me that sounds so funny well uh, I, i'm uh, hopefully it's understandable and maybe we should just keep rolling <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's okay all right uh, sorry about that whatever okay. the problem is i suppose at home i guess you're going to need to talk a lot higher in order to uh to sound normal so just keep that in mind <laughs> that's right I, i'll <laughs> if i had a a helium balloon i would uh, be yeah that's what you need i think right now that's awesome how funny uh, go right ahead mike okay number four your office has an ongoing relationship with a local developer that owns three loft office loft buildings every time a new tenant is to move in they get your team to do a new layout for the contractors to do a quick build out for the graphic design firm that is moving in they specify that they will give you up to three thousand dollars for the new layout Michelle will be working on the project. She makes approximately $30 per hour. How many hours does Michelle have to produce the work? So the obvious thing to do here is you're gonna take uh, 30 and divide it into the 3000 total amount, and that would give you 100 hours of time that Michelle has to do this, this layout. The problem with that is that's actually not how billable hours works. Um, that if somebody is, uh, making $30 an hour, that's not what they're being billed out as to the client. Uh, and this, once you start to think about it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, if you if you spend any time in the field, you probably have noticed these, you know, much higher billable rates than the rates that you're actually being paid. Um, and the reason for that is it's the way that architects get paid. So it has to cover not just the person who's doing the work, but everything else, it has to cover a portion of the rent, it has to cover some of the insurance, it has to cover uh, buying new computers, it has to cover software costs, it has to cover going to the convention, it has to cover uh, the HR people who aren't billing, it has to cover uh, marketing work that also can't bill out. Now, not every single architecture firm in the country uh, uses billable hours as the way that they uh, earn income, but the vast majority do, and it's sort of the generally understood way that architects uh, make money for a project. So if you have uh, somebody who is being paid, say, $30 an hour, um, then the billable rate is going to be, you're going to multiply that by uh, just for the sake of one thing, you're going to multiply it by about three, maybe 3.5, maybe four. Um, different parts of the country 
you might see the billable rate as low as say 2.5 times what uh, the, the the direct um, billing of the of the person doing the work is, uh, and in some places you might see it as high as about 4.5. Um, so the typical kind of numbers that you're likely to see used uh, kind of in everyday uh, on the exam would be somewhere in the three to four range, uh, and that would be sort of the, the typical uh, expected. So when we scan through, uh, it's definitely not the 100, as we said. Uh, it's definitely not five, uh, and it's definitely not three, uh, but about 30 hours, uh, that seems about right. So uh, if you kind of uh, multiply these, these out, you're gonna get about 30 hours uh, of time to, to be able to do this new layout and enough information for the contractors to do their build out. Uh, billable hours are really fascinating and it's uh, worth spending some time uh, kind of making sure you're comfortable with them. The practice management uh, and the project management, you will definitely get questions about billable hours. Uh, and so kind of understanding what goes into a billable hour, what, uh, you know, what uh, what makes up uh, that process, uh, what is able to be billed and what is not um, are, are all really interesting questions and will likely show up on the exam in some form. So as a quick example, um, uh, you could imagine seeing, uh, let's say a firm that says, hey, we do a lot of research. We're really research focused. Well, then the question becomes, is the research attached to a project and therefore you are actually billing that time uh, that you're doing the research to a client, or are you doing your own research separately uh, that's not billable and that that sits as a separate thing in the way that like marketing or human resources would, um, and it sits separately and it's not billed. And one of the reasons that would become important is uh, that the research that you do that you are not billing through uh, billable hours means that that's your information for you to use. Uh, research that you're doing through billable hours, obviously you get to use it, but also so does the client. So it's it's equally their information because it's part of your instruments of service. Uh, and so it's part of what you are contractually giving to them. Um, and so if it's uh, anything you wanna keep to yourself and have this be something that builds up your knowledge base and not necessarily other folks, you would want to think about how you got that paid for. So billable hours, that's just one example of how of many different sort of interesting and complicated ways that billable hours can kind of play out in unusual, uh, unusual ways. But this concept that it's not just what the person is being paid per hour, it's a combination of the per hour cost plus the overhead of running a firm at you know, some portion of that overhead of running a firm. And it, that's how all those things actually get paid for. We had a lot of questions, Mike, about that on the community, uh, but I think, I think we're good. So I think you, you did a nice job of that. There are a lot of people who, uh, before we even got into that one, had to ask questions about it, so. Um, yeah. Um, and there's, you know, if, like I said, there are a number of um, uh, resources to look around. Uh, we have some pretty good information uh, on Bill Black Spectacles uh, about billable hours. There's a number of, of spots you should look. Uh, but you also, if you're working in a firm, you should just talk to, you know, the people who 
uh, put the projects together and say, how do you do billable hours? Like, what does it mean to you? And how do you, you know, what, you know, how do you decide what the multiplier is? And, you know, you might find that they, at any one office, they might use a couple different multipliers. Um, they might use a lower multiplier for kind of general staff, but then a higher multiplier for like project architects and folks like that. Um, and they, they sort of find ways where uh, the numbers don't feel too high to a client. Like it's, you know, you, you can't really say, yeah, we're going to just multiply everybody by 200, uh, uh, where so such that their billable hours or billable rate is say $250 an hour. Like, typical client would see that and be like, that's crazy. I'm not going to pay, you know, every, you know, intern a $250 billable rate. Uh, but uh, having rates that range between say 80 up to 120 for sort of fairly standard things, 120 to 150 for more uh, specific things like uh, project managers and, and project architects, 150 to uh, 200, maybe even a little higher than 200. Uh, for principals and uh, high-level project architects for bigger projects. Uh, mm -hmm. You might get up into uh, higher than that for very high-end uh, and high-level people, uh, up to 300 or something. Um, but uh, in that range, that's typically what people are being billed at. So uh, I remember when I first saw that, when I, was first, when I first saw that I was being billed out uh, when I was, you know, was decades ago, and I was being billed out at $100 an hour or something, I thought that's crazy. I'm not getting anywhere near that money. And then it, somebody mm -hmm. had to explain to me, it's like it's not just about you. It's also about the rent and the computers <laughs> and all those things. Thanks, Mike. Uh, so, so absolutely, uh, definitely look into it. It will absolutely show up on both practice management and project management. And we'll talk uh, more about Bill Blowers a little more specifically uh, on the project management one because that's where it really gets close because you're you're trying to figure out how much money per project you have at any one point in time. And it's uh, complicated because everybody's billed at different rates. And by the way, uh, uh, people are, are commenting about your now very deep voice on, on the community and is really throwing people. I think most people are used to uh, listening to you at 200% speed. Yeah, uh, with super high. high. Yeah. So this is the opposite. <laughs> so everyone's kind of freaked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll try talking like this. No, I won't do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. Okay, number five, uh, what what would be a big advantage of working with a construction manager project delivery method? So just remember that when you say project delivery method, what you're talking about is the overall way that the project is going to be um, is going to happen, like the, the set of contracts, like what the relationships are, how everybody's going to work. Um, and so like the classic project delivery method is uh, design, bid, build. And that's where there's an owner, owner hires an architect, ar architect and the owner talk a lot about the program and uh, they go through schematic design, design development, et cetera, et cetera, get to the end of that, get to bidding, uh, bid it out to a whole series of different uh, uh, potential uh, contractors. Uh, so it, maybe it's a five, 10, whatever number of bidders. One of those bidders is chosen, becomes the, the GC, uh, and they then get a contract with the owner and then they build it out and the architect helps with the construction administration. That's the classic project delivery method, but there's many others. And one of another example would be design build where uh, instead of the architect and the contractor being separate entities, it's actually one entity. Uh, and so there's only one contract between the owner and the design builder. 
Now, interestingly, that one entity can actually be made up inside of that entity by different things. Like I could have an architecture firm and I do a you know special contract, a little joint deal with a contractor and the two of us then for this project become one entity to relate to the owner. Um, but it can also be a sort of long-standing company that has architects and builders uh, involved. Like there's a bunch of different ways it could work, but the concept of the way the project is going to be delivered is that there's one contract between the owner and the project, uh, um, the uh, design builder, and then they're going to do the design and then go right into the to the building and then uh, finish the project out all in that one shot. There's certain advantages, certain disadvantages to that with design bid build, there's certain advantages and certain disadvantages. Um, with design bid build, the big advantage is you get a really good idea of what the owner wants because you have this long period of designing back and forth with the owner, and then you bid it out to a whole bunch of people. So when you get all those bids back, you have a really good idea of what the actual value is and what the uh, what a, a reasonable uh, bid price actually is because you're able to compare them. Um, with some of the other ones, it's less, that's less easy to do um, and you don't get a very good comparison. But for example, you might be able to go faster. So like a design builder, uh, you know, you don't have that whole uh, bidding process in the middle. You don't have uh, a lot of communication difficulties. And so the whole thing can shorten up, which could be a big advantage. Plus for the owners, having there just be one phone call, uh, like something goes wrong, they don't have to like, sit through a dispute between the architect saying, hey, it was the contractor's fault and the contractor saying, hey, they didn't draw it right. You know, like it's just one entity. So the owner says, hey, there's a problem. The, the design builder just has to go deal with it, right? So there's, uh, you know, a bunch of advantages and disadvantages to the various different ways you could do this. There's fast track, there's multiple prime, there's uh, integrated project delivery. There's, there's a whole series of different ways to do it. The one that's being talked about here is CM, construction manager. There's actually many different versions of CM uh, project delivery. There's CM at risk, there's CM uh, not at risk. There's, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, there's probably five or six uh, different ways that you can do a CM. Um, but the, the gist of it is the sort of simplified version of what this is, is that the client hires the architect uh, but instead of waiting until uh, all of the drawings are done and then bringing on uh, contractors to, to look at the bid documents, the uh, client has somebody essentially on staff as an employee. Now, it doesn't actually technically have to be an employee. It could be an outside entity that they just have a contract with or something. But effectively, the, the ownership has a builder who is part of their team. Uh, and so instead of waiting all the way to the end of the design process and then seeing what the contractors think, you're getting the contractor's input from the start. Uh, and they are tied with uh, the owner. And sometimes, not every time, um, probably most of the time, when you go into construction, then the construction manager would be hiring on behalf of the owner directly out to various subs. So instead of having a general contractor taking uh, a lot of profit in this process, the uh, construction manager is uh, essentially leaving that profit margin with the owner so they don't have to pay it out and they're doing direct 
uh, relationships with all the various subs. Not every CM works that way, but that, that's sort of the general, if you say construction manager, that's what people would assume you meant. Uh, and that process is kind of interesting. The big advantage that owners love is that uh, you have more construction information early, but also uh, they aren't giving away uh, extra profit to the GCs. They're holding on to that profit. The obvious disadvantage, this is a flip of that coin, is that uh, you know the reason that a contractor is making some profit is like if they say uh, yeah we'll build this for you for uh, two million dollars uh, and they're able to build it for 1.8 uh, well that's great that means they've managed to figure out how to do it better they still get paid the two million dollars on a typical contract not every contract but typical contract you know whatever the contract was for that's what they'll get paid and so they get this extra money and uh, which is awesome but it also means that that contractor who says they can do it for $2 million and for whatever reason, the rain happened, there was difficulties, the plumber never showed up, the like who knows what might go wrong. And maybe it ended up costing them 2.2 .2 million. Well, that means they're eating that 0.2 million. Um, so they're taking a big risk uh, on that because they're gonna get paid the $2 million. So it's great for the owners when they uh, take the profit away for themselves but they can also accidentally, uh, without meaning to, also take the risk uh, and things can actually cost more and they would have actually saved money with a GC. So there are advantages and disadvantages that can be a little complicated. So to the answers here, um, I'm gonna go from D up. Uh, it's the fastest project delivery method uh, is not true. Uh, fast track would certainly be faster. Uh, design build probably is faster, although it depends a little bit. Um, so there's definitely other project delivery methods that are faster. Um, more direct, see more direct contact with the owner. That's actually also not true because there's now this uh, entity kind of in between the owner and the architect which is the construction manager. Um, and so it changes the relationship between owner and the architect uh, that most of the communication, instead of going directly from owner to architect, architect to owner, will actually be going through the construction manager, uh, which if you have a good construction manager is awesome. Uh, if you have a confused, it's, you know, it's one more layer of communication, uh, which can be problematic in a lot of situations. How about B, uh, gives the architect more control over the project? Uh, I'm sure there are many people that would say that that's actually true, but I would say that's definitely false. Uh, and the reason that I say it's false is yes, you have now more construction information early in the project, but uh, you're also getting a lot of pricing early through construction information. And if the uh, construction manager says, all right, the, the schematic design drawings that we have should uh, keep us at about, say, the $2 million mark. Um, but then if they have been uh, low in their uh, expectation of pricing, that means it's the architects who are gonna have to figure out how to make the project meet their pricing, not the other way around where you do the design and then see what the price is. Um, and so it's really useful to have early pricing and early construction information, but it's also can be a little, uh, uh, a bit of a loss of control of the project from the architect handed over to the construction manager. So the answer here is, and this is the one that you will see 
on the exam uh, is that the great thing about a CM is that I get better cost information early. And if you think about design, bid, build, there's a bunch of great things about it. I get really good idea of what the actual price should be, but I get it months into the process. Uh, obviously, if you know we've done a full set of drawings and we bid it all out and we think it's gonna be $2 million construction budget, but all the bids come back at 4 million, well, you know, now we're months behind and we have to completely redo the design and all the drawings and everything in order to kind of get back on track. The idea of having the construction manager involved in that early phase is that they're bringing this high level of uh, cost and construction information early into the project. And that that's one of the big advantages. In fact, in my mind, it's the big advantage of going with that project delivery method. So when you see construction manager, one of the things you should kind of should tick in your head is early cost information, early construction information. Thank you, Mike. All right, a couple questions here. <clears throat> um, Mike, I'm gonna go back to, I think we're good on this number five here, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, going back to number one, there was an interesting question someone <clears throat> posted, it was uh, Tatiana, uh, who said, uh, for question number one, would workers' comp be a valid answer as well? I thought that was kind of an interesting one. Oh uh, yeah, workers' comp absolutely would, um, but workers' comp would kind of fall into the category similar to GL, general liability. Um, essentially, everybody has workers' comp uh, issues. Now, workers' comp, there, it, it quickly gets into some complicated areas, uh, uh, which I, are going to be very quickly beyond my knowledge base. But um, uh, you know, there's differences between salaried employees, hourly employees, and contractor employees, like contract employees. Um, and workers' comp would show up with some and not with others. Um, uh, there's a bunch of issues about scale of an office, like how many people in a business before you get into workers' comp uh, kinds of uh, issues. So it, it, not necessarily every office would, would have that as an issue, but yes, absolutely, um, that's the, the, a kind of thing that would show up uh, uh, kind of across the board. That's a great question. Yeah, uh, thanks, Mike. Um, let me see here, I'm sort of, I think we've we've touched on a lot of these questions. Um, let me think here. Yeah, I think we're good. I think we've we've touched on on all this. So um, uh, in large part. So first of all, thank you everyone for for posting over here on the community. We hit a we hit a world record for the number of comments and uh, folks who who joined up. So uh, we're also kind of uh, you know trying some new ways. I started posting the, que the questions and answers as we went along. Uh, maybe that'll be helpful uh, as a way to do this going forward. But uh, appreciate everyone joining over there. Um, and especially, if I can just jump in for a quick sec, especially if you have uh, more thoughts about the billable hours one, join us on the next one next month because we'll spend a little bit more time uh, focused on that and explaining it a little bit more thoroughly. Yeah, that's a good point, Mike. And, and actually, maybe to add to that, um, if we didn't get to your question specifically, I think we touched on most of them, but if we didn't get to your question specifically, if you want to hop over to the community and post it there, um, myself and, and my team, uh, Laura and everybody else, will we'll make sure that we get you an answer, uh, which again is really the point of this community. So it's there to be a free resource for everyone uh, if you have questions uh, you know, as you're, as you're studying. Um, there's a couple of things I want to share with you guys. Um, 
let's see. First of all, <laughs> this may have been posted yesterday or may have been posted um, today. It sounds like for some folks and, and maybe maybe everyone um, uh, that the testing centers might actually not be open until May 31st. Um, as we were doing some research during this episode, uh, that may have changed, <laughs> which is kind of nuts that during this episode that might have changed. But uh, a number of you made comments that uh, May 31st was the day. Uh, NCAR was saying May 1st, uh, but we looked at Prometric and Prometric looks like they just updated their information as well. So uh, I guess the point here is go to Prometric's website and, and uh, check, it, check it out for your state because things are changing quickly. So I think the principle though is the same. And that principle is, um, you know, there are many people who are continuing to study and prepare, uh, anticipating and open at some point. Uh, and so if that's you, uh, you know, and you're ready to, you know, get this kind of behind you, uh, when things open, you know, you might as well uh, register for the test so that you can make sure you've got a seat uh, when they do open. Um, so I wanted to share that. Also, someone commented uh, on the on the community here. I think it was Jessica mentioned. Um, we did introduce uh, a new uh, tool that we have at Black Spectacles. It's called uh, Virtual Workshops. It kind of replaces or it's kind of an advancement, you might say, sort of a, the next iteration of what we used to call group coaching. Um, it's a it's a pretty interesting um, uh, you know we basically gathered a bunch of feedback from all of you and uh, and realized that folks were sort of uh, you know there are sort of key topics that folks were struggling with on each exam and so what we did is we actually developed lessons uh, and those lessons we actually introduced those in a live um, web webinar which we call virtual webinars um, and it's usually like a two-hour session uh, Sundays at two o'clock. Um, most of the time is spent kind of going through these uh, lessons live, um, and we have an instructor for all six exams, um, and you go through the lesson, um, and then you can present your answer, and you get feedback on it, and then at the end, there's a Q&A session. Um, and so this is something we started a couple of weeks ago. Um, so far, it's been really well received. Um, virtual workshops are uh, a part of our um, um, uh, a new subscription is called uh, our ARE Expert subscription. Uh, so if you want to learn any more information about that, you can go to our website um, or hop on chat and we can share any kind of or any answers to any questions you guys might have about that. Um, so just wanted to share that with you guys. In addition to the, the launch of the community, we also have uh, that to share as well. And our next ARE Live podcast, we're going to review, as, as we mentioned, the project management mock exam. Uh, we'll do that with uh, with Mike as well. Uh, and we're going to post the link to that in the chat box uh, in the GoToWebinar control panel or in the discussion thread uh, below um, uh, the podcast or video that you're watching here. Uh, or you can just go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to sign up. Um, and then to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the videos. Um, and if you think your firm could benefit from a membership, uh, many firms actually, it's interesting, we've heard a couple of firms who've mentioned that as they've unfortunately had to furlough people, they're actually providing uh, black their Black Spectacles firm access to all those folks that are furloughed because they have the time um, and the firm had you know had uh, had invested in in that this is a resource for them. So if your firm uh, might be one of those, uh, you can go to BlackSpectacles.com/firms to learn more about uh, our firm memberships for firms of any size. Uh, and if, if you're one of the people, and there, we, you know, we still have quite a few people who are studying here um, who really are heads down. Uh, if you're one of those people and you're ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, you can use coupon code PCM042320PC.
to get a 15% discount for the entire uh, uh, duration of your ARE exam prep membership. Um, and then actually we, uh, we did have a winner today. Um, let's see here. Our winner of our free t-shirt today is R. Michelman. Um, and uh, R. Michelman, we, uh, thanks for posting on our community. Uh, I believe we have your email address, so we're gonna go ahead and we'll send you a note uh, via email to get uh, a free t-shirt going your way. So thanks everyone again for posting on our community. And finally, tomorrow we'll email uh, all of you a follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think. If you have any suggestions about episodes, things you'd like to hear about, uh, you know, particular exam or specific topic, please let, let, let us know. Uh, we really read everything that you guys say and use those to tune our next episode. So thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.